G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. This is part two of a deep dive into the character of Enoch, the guy who couldn't just die like everyone else in this genealogy. He had to be special, didn't he? So what was so special about Enoch? Well, as we said last week, Chris, Enoch was known for this very close relationship to God. And we should be thinking about that in terms of loyalty and obedience and also repentance. But the thing that makes the story of Enoch so remarkable is the fact that we're not told about the end of his life. Here's the end of Enoch's story in the NIV. Genesis 5 verse 23, altogether Enoch lived a total of 365 years. Enoch walked faithfully with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. And I like the NIV here because of the inclusion of the idea of faithfulness, which is an interpretation of that idiomatic language that we talked about last time on the podcast. And I think it's a pretty good one. And so back at the beginning of the season, we talked about different ways that people have tried to interpret Genesis 5 and the way different people have wrestled with the long ages of the patriarchs. And you might recall that I pretty much rubbished the idea of interpreting the chapter as some kind of system of astronomical observations. And I bring that up because you only have to mention Enoch's 365 years and everybody suddenly becomes an expert on the movement of the Earth around the sun, like that's got anything to do with biblical theology. And I mentioned the fact that nobody in the ancient world was even using a solar calendar at the time Genesis 5 or its source material was written, like we do today. So that couldn't possibly be the point being made by the author of the text. That should be even more apparent when you realise that there actually is a calendar described in the book of First Enoch, and it has only 364 days, not 365. Admittedly, it is a solar calendar, but then we're a long way away from the origins of Genesis 5 at this point in history. We actually do have internal evidence from the primeval history that a 360-day calendar was in use at the time of writing. Interesting. So is there anything special about the number 365 in Genesis, though? As I mentioned last week, the first number associated with Enoch is his age at the birth of Methuselah. And we talked about the significance of the components of that number. And after we'd considered the 5 and 60 years and 100 years presented there, we were then left with the 200 years that followed according to the Septuagint translation. And we noted the correlation between the appearance of the number 200 in this text and in other texts associated with Enoch in the Second Temple period. We're going to talk a bit more about that soon, but the critical point here is that the number 365 is just the product of those significant numbers. It's simply a mathematical outcome without any necessary requirement for theological significance of its own. Unlike the scribes who gave us the final version of the Samaritan Pentateuch, other Bible translators made sure that their numbers added up. Now, with that little sidebar out of the way, we can get to the more interesting aspects of the story of Enoch, because what we really want to know is what actually happened to him. Hey, Tim, I was just wondering what actually happened to Enoch. Let's find out. The text tells us that Enoch was not. What does that actually mean? Some versions will say that he was not found, and that's probably a good way to put it because, like I said about the NIV, including the idea of faithfulness earlier, sometimes we need a little help to unpack the phrasing. You might have noticed as we've been going through the various numbers featured in the genealogy that the number zero does not occur. That's because they don't use the number zero. That's not a thing. They don't have zero. 
It's kind of funny because when I say they don't have zero, I'm actually talking the way that an ancient Hebrew person would have spoken about anything that they don't have. That's confusing. I'm very confused right now. Okay, so the thing about zero is that it's not a thing. And we talked about the concept of nothingness back in our very earliest episodes of this podcast. Ancient people didn't do zero. They just totally lacked the concept of absolute nothingness. This is because they don't do abstracts. So everything has to be concrete. The moment you talk about something, you've made it a concrete reality, whether it's real or not. Instead, everything has to be talked about in terms of function. And if something functions, then it exists. If something is non-functional, then it's non-existent. You can't say there are no oranges. You have to say, I am not having oranges. So there are oranges because oranges are a thing, but I don't have them. And since I'm not functioning as a person who has oranges, then it's understood that if there are any oranges, they're not with me. I'm not being a person who's doing the having of oranges. And since oranges are not being oranges to me, they don't exist with me. I do not be having oranges. Take your breath. Uh, are you saying that Enoch is like the orange? Don't be silly, Chris. Nothing rhymes with orange. No, it doesn't. Okay. So anyway, what we're getting at here is that Enoch being described as not as in, and then he was not, basically means that his existence hasn't been negated, but his function in terms of the world of mortal men has ceased. In other words, he's gone. So where did he go? The Hebrew lacha means to take, specifically to take to yourself. So you wouldn't use that term for getting rid of something. You don't use it when you're destroying something. You don't use it when you're giving something away. This is a term intended to imply taking something into your possession. So when the text tells us that God took him, we need to understand that as God having taken Enoch to be with himself, to be where God is. Spoiler alert, I said that last week. But the big question is, did Enoch go to heaven or did he go to the Garden of Eden? Now, if you've read my book, you'll know that I settled on Eden as the answer to that question in my book. And then later on this podcast, when we got to the end of chapter three of Genesis, I said I was probably wrong about that and that Enoch would have gone to heaven. But after some further reflection on that, I've decided that the answer to this question is yes. And while we're on the topic of weirdly unsatisfying answers to giant questions, the question of what Enoch did and what he saw while he was in the place where God is, is what prompted the writing of the book of Enoch. So let's talk about that. The book of Enoch that was known to the authors of the New Testament is known today as First Enoch because after the biblical period, there were other books written. We'll talk about those another time. First Enoch isn't actually a single book, but a compilation of five separate works. Each of them is attributed to the biblical character of Enoch, who we've been reading about in Genesis 5, but we can be about 99% sure that the biblical Enoch from Genesis 5 didn't actually write any of this stuff. And I say 99% because we don't know if anything had been written back then and preserved until that time and then lost, and that's highly unlikely to be the case. Again, that's something that we're going to talk about in more detail later. First Enoch is called a pseudepigraphical book, and that's just a big word that means that the author claims to be Enoch, but he wasn't really Enoch. But isn't that lying? Like, I can't just write something and say that the Prime Minister wrote it. Why doesn't the author use his real name? Why doesn't he just say, this is a story about Enoch? This is one of those things where it's helpful to know a bit about ancient culture. It turns out that writing things under an assumed name was actually a widespread practice back in the day. And the intent was not to be misleading. Actually, people just accepted these things without question and didn't necessarily have any expectation that the named person actually was the author, because this was a known practice. Basically, what's happening here is there's a guy who has a message that he considers to be really important, and he wants to get it out there and get it circulating around lots of people, and he wants it to be taken seriously. So the practice in those times was to use the name or the character of a really important person to add some weight or gravitas to the message. 
And we've already touched on some of the reasons why Enoch was considered to be such a great character in biblical history, because of the special relationship he had with God. So he makes a pretty good candidate for a vessel to communicate some really important messages to the people of God. So the idea is that by crafting a story or a collection of stories around this character, you can then talk about things that he saw and experienced, which provide important teachings for the target audience. And to find out what those messages are, we're going to need to break down the book of First Enoch into its individual components, and we'll discuss each one just briefly. Okay, that sounds like it's going to be pretty interesting as always. So what's the first part of the book? The first 36 chapters of the book of First Enoch are referred to as the Book of the Watchers. This is the most well-known part of First Enoch. It has a story about the events of Genesis 6, which is considerably expanded and developed beyond the text of Genesis. The Book of the Watchers is an apocalyptic narrative. I'll read you just the introduction. I've got Shod's translation here, and it says this. The words of the blessing of Enoch, wherewith he blessed the chosen and just, who will exist on the day of tribulation when all the wicked and impious shall be removed. And then answered and spoke Enoch, a just man, whose eyes were opened by God, so that he saw a holy vision in the heavens, which the angels showed to me. And from them I heard everything, and I knew what I saw, but not for this generation, but for the far-off generations which are to come. Concerning the chosen, I spoke and conversed concerning them with the holy and great one who will come from his abode, the God of the world. And from there he will step onto Mount Sinai and appear with his hosts and appear in the strength of his power from heaven. And all will fear and the watchers will tremble and great fear and terror will seize them to the ends of the earth. And the exalted mountains will be shaken and the high hills will be lowered and will melt like wax before the flame. And the earth will be submerged and everything that is on the earth will be destroyed. And there will be a judgment upon everything and upon all the just. But to the just he will give peace and will protect the chosen, and mercy will abide over them and they will all be gods. I should say that means they will all belong to God and will be prosperous and blessed, and the light of God will shine for them. And behold, he comes with myriads of the holy to pass judgment upon them and will destroy the impious and will call to account all flesh, for everything the sinners and the impious have done and committed against him. All right, so that's the first chapter, and you might recognize that last verse there as the one paraphrased by the Apostle Jude. It's kind of interesting that the passage in First Enoch that Jude references is actually a midrash on Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. The introduction goes on for the next few chapters. Enoch goes on to describe the regularity of the movement of celestial bodies and days and times and seasons. And the idea there is to contrast this against the Watchers, which is the name applied to the rebellious sons of God, as seen in Genesis 6. From chapter 6 onwards, the descent of the rebellious sons of God is described, and there's specific mention made of 200 of these divine beings. 20 of them are specifically named as chiefs of tens, and two of these are spoken of as being chiefly responsible for what happened. Those are Semyaza and Azazel. There's considerable debate over whether these two should actually be identified as one and the same, and still further debate over whether that one ought to be understood as the entity we commonly refer to as Satan. Those are difficult questions to answer. All right, so what happens in the story? So the angels leave their first estate and they take human wives, which results in the birth of the Nephilim. The fallen sons of God and the giants wreak havoc upon the earth because the sons of God teach forbidden knowledge which corrupts humanity inwardly, while the giants destroy and devour everything which results in the destruction of the natural world, and that eventually turns into cannibalism. When God hears about what's going on in the earth, he sends his loyal archangels to sort things out with instructions to bind and imprison the fallen angels and incite the giants to war in order to destroy them. They also tell Noah to hide himself before the coming of a great flood that will destroy the world and all its inhabitants. It's kind of interesting that you don't get much of a description of the event of the flood itself or of the ark that Noah built. 
The fallen angels approach Enoch and ask him to intercede on their behalf before God to grant them mercy. Enoch does this by means of a dream vision, but the response of God is that they will not receive mercy and they shall not have peace. So Enoch comes back and basically says, yeah, okay, so I ask God, he says no. While Enoch is up in heaven, he sees all sorts of cool stuff, gets a tour of heaven, so he describes in very concrete terms all these abstract things that he observed, like time and space and weather and all sorts of interesting stuff. He also gets to see the trees that are described in the Garden of Eden, and this basically leads into a description of restored cosmic order. So the overall message of the Book of the Watchers is not focused on the things that most modern readers are interested in. It does provide something of an explanation for the problem of supernatural evil and the extent of depravity in the world, and stuff like the origin of demons and that kind of thing. But the main thrust of the book is actually the sovereignty of God and the encouraging message that the good order that God intended for the world will be restored at the consummation of all things after the judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous. So this is meant to be an encouraging book that says that God is in charge and he's Going to fix everything in the end. Yeah, that's right. The second major part of the Book of Enoch is the Book of Similitudes, also called the Book of Parables. There are three parables presented in this section of the text between chapters 37 and 71. This is the introduction to the Book of Parables, chapter 37 of the Book of Enoch. The second vision of wisdom, which Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, saw. And this is the beginning of the words of wisdom which I commenced to speak and to relate to those who dwell on the earth. Hear, ancestors, and see, descendants, the holy words which I will speak before the Lord of the spirits. It is proper to name the former first, but from the descendants too we will not keep back the beginning of wisdom. And up to the present time there was not given from before the Lord of the spirits the wisdom which I have received according to my knowledge, according to the pleasure of the Lord of the spirits by whom the portion of life everlasting was given to me. Three parables were given to me, and I commenced to relate them to those who dwell on the earth. Okay, so that was the introduction to the book of similitudes, and you will notice some of the features of this text, such as the brief little genealogy provided to trace from Enoch back to Adam, and also the mention of everlasting life given to Enoch. Yeah, that's an interesting little bit there. The first parable basically retells the story of the Watchers in a shortened form. I might just add that where it mentions the descent of the Watchers to mingle with the seed of men, there's a notation in the translation by R.H. Charles indicating a possible corruption in the text, which makes sense because it seems odd that the future tense is used in this passage, which makes it sound like there's going to be a future second incursion of the sons of God to create Nephilim on the earth once more. So it's quite helpful to see that Charles has noted the problem there in the extant manuscripts. So this is the first three verses of chapter 39 in the Charles translation. And it shall come to pass in those days that elect and holy children will descend from the high heaven and their seed will become one with the children of men. And in those days, Enoch received books of zeal and wrath and books of disquiet and expulsion. And mercy shall not be accorded to them, saith the Lord of spirits. And in those days, a whirlwind carried me off from the earth and set me down at the end of the heavens. So you would have noticed there that only the first of those three verses features the future tense and the next two verses are in the past tense. Charles has picked up on the inconsistency here and I would agree that he's right. It makes a lot more sense to read it within the context in which it's presented. And that means we're talking about events that were contemporaneous with the biblical Enoch of Genesis 5. And this is definitely not talking about some future scenario. Having said that, the overarching emphasis of this narrative is on the eschatological judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous in the age to come. So with that in mind, it's understandable that a scribe could have made a mistake there at the beginning of chapter 39. According to this parable, Enoch once again gets to see heavenly things and the workings of the universe, the fate of the righteous and the wicked, the archangels that serve before God, and lots of other cool stuff. 
It does sound really cool, but just remind me again, are we expected to believe that the guy we've been reading about in Genesis 5 is the same guy who has these adventures recorded in First Enoch? Well, that's the way the stories are being told, but we have to remember that this is literature. There's nothing wrong with somebody just writing a story in that fashion to communicate things they want to tell you. It doesn't need to be anchored in historicity. Nobody's making the claim that this is a scientifically accurate record of stuff that went on back in the days before the flood. But what they are claiming is that these stories have important things for the audience to learn. All right, that makes sense. So that was the first parable, and there are two more. Yeah, that's right. So now let's look at the second parable of the Book of Similitudes. Again, we have an apocalyptic message of the future judgment and the hope of the righteous. But what makes this second parable special is the language around God. In this parable, the Most High God is referred to as the Ancient of Days, and with him is the Son of Man, who's also identified as God. We're going to talk more about this Son of Man in next week's episode, particularly because this title and description gets applied to Enoch himself. But for now, the thing to take out of this is the explicit terminology that identifies God in two persons as the Lord of the Spirits and also as a tangible entity in human form. And speaking of the Lord of the Spirits, if you enjoy that podcast by that name, you'll be familiar with the verse that is read at the beginning of each episode, which comes from this second parable of Enoch. Anyway, that was chapters 45 to 57, and we have one more parable left in this section of First Enoch, which is going to take us through to chapter 71, and that's the bit where Enoch himself gets called the Son of Man. I might just add, you won't find that in the R.H. Charles translation because he figured that that was a mistake and he edited it out. Sometimes Charles makes good editorial decisions and sometimes they're not so good. We're going to talk more about that next week. Anyway, this parable, in keeping with the overall theme of the book, is an apocalyptic vision of the heavens, the judgment of the person of God. In particular, the second person of the Godhead is revealed as the son of a woman. Here's a quote from Charles' translation. This is from chapter 62, verses 5 to 7. And one half of them will look at the other and they will be terrified and will cast down their faces and pain will take hold of them when they see that son of a woman sitting on the throne of his glory, God's glory, and the mighty kings and all those who possess the earth will praise and bless and exalt him who rules everything that is hidden. For from the beginning, that son of man was hidden and the most high kept him in the presence of his power and revealed him only to the chosen. There's a heap of other cool stuff in this third parable. Notably, the creation of Leviathan and Behemoth as instruments of God's punishment on the wicked. And more stuff about the Watchers, including a bit about an individual named Gadriel, who apparently was the one who tempted Eve in the garden, and also taught men how to use deadly force against one another. So there's some fascinating stuff in there. But again, the real thrust of the parable is the encouragement toward the elect, or the chosen, as you may have it in your translation, to continue in righteousness despite the success of the wicked and the apparent delay of the Lord's coming. This is pre-Christian folks. The elect are not Calvinists, they're Jews. They're God's faithful people. And the hope of God's people has always been directed toward the future and the hope of God's justice prevailing. That's true. We often lose sight of that. There's a lot of emphasis in this parable on measuring stuff. We see that in the book of Revelation too. It's about the justice of God. Everyone gets what God has decided they're owed right down to the last millimeter. Nevertheless, this isn't only about reward and punishment. Central to this parable is the revelation of the person of God, in particular, as he's made manifest as the Son of Man. And that's a theme that will continue to develop as we move into the rest of the book of Enoch. Next week, we're going to spend the whole episode looking at that Son of Man motif as we see it here in First Enoch, and we're going to talk about how we should understand that. Yeah, that's going to be a big one. I was I was going to ask about that because we know that Son of Man is a title that gets applied to Jesus, so it feels kind of weird seeing it there written about Enoch. Yeah, but moving on now, we come to the astronomical book. 
which covers chapters 72 through 82 of First Enoch. And again, right off the bat, we're reminded that the calendar, according to this author, was comprised of only 364 days. Not 365, because it wasn't a precise calendar. It's also not the same calendar that existed during the time that Genesis 5 describes or when it was written. The calendar, according to First Enoch, is a solar calendar, but it doesn't have the kind of precision required to line up with the number 365. Chapter 72 describes the movement of the sun and sets out the calendar according to four seasons of 91 days each, comprised of three months, and each month has 30 days, except that every third month has one extra day, and that's how we arrive at a 364-day calendar. And it's worth mentioning that out of all the components that make up the Book of Enoch, this one in particular features the most cosmology as primitive science. And what I mean by that is that this book contains a lot of information that would have been considered scientific for its time. Some of it might be accurate, but a fair amount of it is not. As an example, you've got the idea that the sun and the moon are driven in chariots by the blowing of the wind. It's also interesting that the day is broken up into 18 smaller periods rather than 24 hours. We also need to be careful with the language because there are a lot of antiquated English terms in these old translations that no longer mean the same thing that we modern people might associate with them. And I'm thinking in particular about words like portals. When this book was written, the idea of a place where something made its entrance or its departure would have been referred to as something like a gate or a portal. I feel like some aliens coming on. Tell me there's going to be aliens. Unfortunately, you can't talk about gates or portals of the heavenly bodies these days without people thinking about science fiction and stuff like Stargate. Honestly, that couldn't have been further from the mind of the author. We're talking here about a calendar based on observable phenomena and not some kind of intergalactic space travel fantasy. All that stuff is meant to describe is the idea that as the seasons progress, the sun rises and sets in a slightly different position from the perspective of the observer. Now, the moon and its phases get described in chapter 73, followed by a description of the lunar year as it relates to the solar calendar in chapters 74 to 75. Chapter 76 describes the 12 winds and their portals, which is really just a fancy way of describing where the different winds blow from and what that means for people living in the land. So when it blows from this direction, that brings with it these conditions, and it's going to be stuff like heat and desolation and locusts or something like that. And if it blows from the other direction, then you're going to get cold and frost or maybe different locusts or something. In chapter 77, the four quarters of the world are described in order, beginning from the east and going clockwise. The fourth quarter is the north, and it's described in cosmological terms, divided into three sections according to a three-tiered cosmology. Then we get the seven mountains, seven rivers, seven great islands, before chapter 78 describes the waxing and waning of the moon, and there's a recapitulation of several of these laws about the movements of the sun and moon through to chapter 80. All of this is designed to set forth the perfect motion of the celestial bodies by way of contrast to what is to come in chapter 80. Chapter 80 describes the perversion of nature and the heavenly bodies due to the sin of men. So basically the angel tells Enoch that the reason things don't go right on the earth is because of sin and idolatry. Yeah, pretty much. In chapter 81, Enoch sees the heavenly tablets and gets instructed to tell others what he saw. They give him a limited time to share with his son Methuselah everything he's learned before they take him back. The heavenly tablets are basically God's books that have everything that everybody's done and that kind of thing, like what you see when you read Revelation. And that's a pretty old idea because even Moses talked about being blotted out of God's book in the story of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing new under the sun. Finally, in chapter 82, the charge is given to Methuselah to preserve this knowledge, in particular that of the four intercalary days in the calendar. Enoch has learned that the four extra days to be inserted in the calendar are the causes of sin because people using the wrong calendar 
haven't pleased God in their observance of religion. In other words, according to this text, the use of a 360-day calendar has led people astray and caused them to displease God. And that's why everything in the universe is out of whack. This text is intended to guide people into the true worship of God by maintaining the correct calendar so that the festivals are observed correctly. Remember, this is composed in the post-exile period and cast against the disillusionment of the Jewish people with the way that things are compared to how they imagined things used to be. They want to know why they don't have the favour of God the way that it was before. And the solution to this problem, according to First Enoch, is the idea that they must have been using the wrong calendar. Therefore, they haven't conducted the feasts and festivals or offered sacrifices at the right times that God had appointed. Remember all this talk about the luminaries in the calendar is connected back to Genesis 1 and the idea that the heavenly bodies determined the appointed times. So were there people using this calendar as it gets presented here in the Book of Enoch? Yeah, this calendar forms the basis for the chronology presented in the Book of Jubilees. And we talked about that earlier in the season because it's the calendar used by the Samaritans and it was also the calendar used by the sect at Qumran. So anyway, this whole idea of the wrong calendar being the reason why things are all messed up is why the Book of the Luminaries concludes with a record of the names of the angels in charge of the seasons and the weather and all that kind of stuff. This is Enoch basically saying, look, according to Genesis 1, it's these heavenly bodies that decide when stuff happens on the earth. And I've seen these guys and I know their names and everything. So make sure you keep the calendar because I saw the heavenly tablets and it don't look good for some of y'all. So that's the end of the third section of First Enoch, which means we've got two more to go. Yeah, so now we're moving to the fourth section of the book of First Enoch, and this one's known as the Dream Visions. I'm going to read you the first two chapters to give you a bit of a flavor of this, and we're going to find out what the author of First Enoch thinks was the catalyst for Enoch's change of heart and repentance at the age of 165 when he had his son Methuselah. This is chapters 83 to 84 of First Enoch. And now, my son Methuselah, I will show thee all my visions which I have seen, recounting them before thee. Two visions I saw before I took a wife, and the one was quite unlike the other. The first when I was learning to write. The second before I took thy mother, when I saw a terrible vision. And regarding them, I prayed to the Lord. I had laid me down in the house of my grandfather Mahalalel, when I saw in a vision how the heaven collapsed and was borne off and fell to the earth. And when it fell to the earth, I saw how the earth was swallowed up in a great abyss. And mountains were suspended on mountains, and hills sank down on hills, and high trees were rent from their stems, and hurled down and sunk in the abyss. And thereupon a word fell into my mouth, and I lifted up my voice to cry aloud, and said, The earth is destroyed. And my grandfather Mahalalel waked me as I lay near him, and said unto me, Why dost thou cry so, my son, and why dost thou make such lamentation? And I recounted to him, the whole vision which I had seen, and he said unto me, A terrible thing hast thou seen, my son, and of grave moment is thy dream vision, as to the secrets of all the sin of the earth. It must sink into the abyss and be destroyed with a great destruction. And now, my son, arise and make petition to the Lord of glory, since thou art a believer, that a remnant may remain on the earth, and that he may not destroy the whole earth. My son, from heaven all this will come upon the earth, and upon the earth there will be great destruction." After that I arose and prayed and implored and besought and wrote down my prayer for the generations of the world, and I will show everything to thee, my son Methuselah. And when I had gone forth below and seen the heaven and the sun rising in the east and the moon setting in the west and a few stars and the whole earth and everything as he had known it in the beginning, then I blessed the Lord of judgment and extolled him because he had made the sun to go forth from the windows of the east and he ascended and rose on the face of the heaven and set out and kept traversing the path shown unto him. And I lifted up my hands in righteousness and blessed the Holy and Great One, and spake with the breath of my mouth and with the tongue of flesh which God has made for the children of the flesh of men, that they should speak therewith. 
and he gave them breath and a tongue and a mouth that they should speak therewith. Blessed be thou, O Lord, King, great and mighty in thy greatness, Lord of the whole creation of the heaven, King of kings and God of the whole world. And thy power and kingship and greatness abide for ever and ever, and throughout all generations thy dominion. And all the heavens are thy throne for ever, and the whole earth thy footstool for ever and ever. For thou hast made, and thou rulest all things, and nothing is too hard for thee. Wisdom departs not from the place of thy throne, nor turns away from thy presence. And thou knowest and seest and hearest everything, and there is nothing hidden from thee. And now the angels of thy heavens are guilty of trespass. And upon the flesh of men abideth thy wrath until the great day of judgment. And now, O God and Lord and great King, I implore and beseech thee to fulfill my prayer, to leave me a posterity on earth and not destroy all the flesh of man and make the earth without inhabitant so that there should be an eternal destruction. And now, my Lord, destroy from the earth the flesh which has aroused thy wrath, but the flesh of righteousness and uprightness establish as a plant of the eternal seed and hide not thy face from the prayer of thy servant, O Lord." Okay, so that's the first dream vision, which basically describes the coming flood from the perspective of the antediluvian world. The next one gets pretty trippy. This one's called the animal apocalypse. Basically, the idea of this one is the retelling of biblical history from Adam and Eve all the way up to the time of the Maccabean revolt, which would have been roughly contemporaneous with the writing of First Enoch. And the story is retold using animals. The good guys are white animals and the bad guys are black animals. And the people who are peripheral to the story are red animals. Now, before we start thinking in terms of racism here and, oh, it's not good that the bad guys are always black and all that kind of thing, let's just get some perspective here. This is an ancient story about a dream, and the dream has nothing to do with racism or national identity or any of that kind of nonsense. It's actually just a way of talking about whether someone is righteous or unrighteous based on the metaphor of light and darkness. It's not about skin color. I should probably mention that the people who wrote this were probably black. Anyway, I'm going to give you a quote from the first part of the animal apocalypse just so that you can see how this works. And you should be thinking here about characters that we know because we've been studying them here on the podcast from Genesis 3 through into Genesis 5. So this is 1st Enoch chapter 85. And after this, I saw another dream and I will show the whole dream to thee, my son. And Enoch lifted up his voice and spake to his son Methuselah. To thee, my son, will I speak. Hear my words. Incline thine ear to the dream vision of thy father. Before I took thy mother Edna, I saw in a vision on my bed, and behold, a bull came forth from the earth, and that bull was white, and after it came forth a heifer, and along with this latter came forth two bulls, one of them black and the other red. And that black bull gored the red one, and pursued him over the earth, and thereupon I could no longer see that red bull. But that black bull grew, and that heifer went with him, and I saw that many oxen proceeded from him which resembled and followed him. And that cow, that first one, went from the presence of that first bull in order to seek that red one, but found him not, and lamented with a great lamentation over him, and sought him. And I looked till that first bull came to her and quieted her, and from that time onwards she cried no more. And after that she bore another white bull, and after him she bore many bulls and black cows. And I saw in my sleep that white bull likewise grow and become a great white bull, and from him proceeded many white bulls, and they resembled him. And they began to beget many white bulls, which resembled them, one following the other, even many. All right, so what we've just read is the story of Adam and Eve and the way that they had two sons and one killed the other. And then later they had a third son who became the father of many descendants who resembled him. And you might recognize that kind of language from early in Genesis 5, where we read that Seth had a son in his own likeness. 
So that's kind of how this whole story plays out, and it lays out all of biblical history right through until the present day from the viewpoint of the author of this book. And then it looks toward the imminent end of the world, the judgment, the resurrection and reward of the righteous, which is, of course, the entire thrust of the book of First Enoch, and the perspective of the entire Jewish world, which is completely focused on this eschatological, apocalyptic hope. I might just say as well that the book of First Enoch is considered to be canon in only a couple of communities, one of which is Jewish and the other Christian, and both of them are in the Ethiopian traditions. They actually believe that these dream visions really were given to the man Enoch, the guy from Genesis 5, and that he predicted the future from that point. Nobody outside of those communities actually takes that claim seriously, though. That's interesting. But what about the book of Jude? Doesn't he claim that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, made that prophecy that we read earlier in the first chapter of the book of Enoch? Yeah, that's right, Chris. That's the way it's written in the book of Jude. I won't go into it now because we're going to look at that in a subsequent episode soon. But yeah, we're going to talk about how to understand Jude in light of what we know about the history of this text. Anyway, moving along, that brings us to the final section of the Book of Enoch, which is called the Epistle of Enoch. We're up to the last little bit now, which is basically just continued exhortation to righteousness and woe to the wicked and all that kind of thing. Interspersed in odd places throughout the entire Book of First Enoch, you find these little fragments of what has come to be known as the Book of Noah. The last few chapters are one of those fragments, and it tells the story of the birth of Noah. And he's described as being quite remarkable because he was radiant at his birth like an angel or something. Anyway, that was a summary of the entire book of First Enoch, all 108 chapters of it, and I would encourage people to read it for the sake of getting some context in terms of worldview and that kind of thing. Just don't read it like an ignorant person who thinks it's a science textbook or something like that. The whole reason that we've bothered to go through this today is because this book was instrumental in shaping the worldview of New Testament writers who were immersed in the culture that developed as a result of this very important text. So New Testament authors take for granted that their media audience was familiar with this text and the worldview that it presents. Yeah, and that's a worldview steeped in Torah and intimately familiar with the prophets. That worldview is informed by a tradition of wisdom literature, a history, and an apocalypticism that is born out from the text of the Old Testament. All right, we better leave it there for today. And when we come back next week, we're going to have a look at that Son of Man idea and get into that, which is awesome, because I really think we need to talk about the way that Enoch gets described in that book as the Son of Man. Yeah, that's going to be a really important thing for us to cover. We're going to do that next week, and then after that we'll have a look at the influence that the Enochic tradition had on the New Testament. All right, and that means right now it's time for Q&A. All right, let's do it. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers at outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. Okay, so we have a question from Tom, which he sent in through our website, giantanswers.com. Uh, thanks for reaching out, Tom. I'm not sure, but it looks like English might not be Tom's first language, so I'm going to try and interpret the question, and hopefully this is what uh, what you're getting at, Tom. Tom says, I think there were those big, giant, fallen angels locked somewhere under the earth. These uh, fallen angels would be used in the last days to attack and cause destruction to the human race. Is it true? Did you find out any names from which regime after God won the battle and cast these angels into the abyss? I'm not sure, but I think Tom might be asking about the names of some of the fallen angels or something like that. Mm, all right. Well, thanks, Tom, for getting in touch. 
Incidentally, this is all stuff that I cover in my book, and I have mentioned some of these things on the podcast already, which you can actually look up using the search function on the website. But since we're all about First Enoch today, why don't we have a look at what that book has to say about these fallen angels being chained up? Because this is where Peter and also Jude are going to get that information from. I won't go through the names of the fallen angels here because that's really just a very simple matter to find those names in a translation of First Enoch. And you don't have to do a lot of reading to be able to find those. I think you can get that in basically the first 10 chapters. But let's talk about those chains now. And this is chapter 54 of First Enoch from verse 1. And I looked and turned to another part of the earth and there saw a deep valley with burning fire. And they brought the kings and the mighty and began to cast them into this deep valley. And there my eyes saw how they made these their instruments, iron chains of immeasurable weight. And I asked the angel of peace who went with me, saying, For whom are these chains being prepared? And he said unto me, These are being prepared for the hosts of Azazel, so that they may take them and cast them into the abyss of complete condemnation. And they shall cover the opening with rough stones, as the Lord of Spirits commanded. And Michael and Gabriel and Raphael and Phanuel shall take hold of them on that great day and cast them on that day into the burning furnace, that the Lord of Spirits may take vengeance on them for their unrighteousness in becoming subject to Satan and leading astray those who dwell on the earth. Now, here's another passage that talks about those chains, and this is the end of chapter 69 from verse 27. And he sat on the throne of his glory, and the sum of judgment was given unto the Son of Man. And he caused the sinners to pass away and to be destroyed from off the face of the earth. And those who have led the world astray with chains shall they be bound and in their assemblage place of destruction shall they be imprisoned and all their works vanish from the face of the earth. And from henceforth there shall be nothing corruptible for that son of man has appeared and has seated himself on the throne of his glory and all evil shall pass away before his face and the word of that son of man shall go forth and be strong before the Lord of spirits. And lastly, we have this passage from chapter 103, from verse 5. Woe to you, ye sinners, when ye have died, if ye die in the wealth of your sins, and those who are like you say regarding you, Blessed are the sinners, they have seen all their days, and how they have died in prosperity and wealth, and have not seen tribulation or murder in their life, and they have died in honor, and judgment has not been executed on them during their life. Know ye that their souls will be made to descend into Sheol, and they shall be wretched in their great tribulation. And into darkness and chains and a burning flame, where there is a grievous judgment, shall your spirits enter. And the great judgment shall be for all the generations of the world. Woe to you, for ye shall have no peace. Okay, so those are the references that Jude and Peter would have had in mind with regard to the fate of those rebellious sons of God from Genesis 6. Here's 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And I'm just going to briefly quote myself uh, from my book, Answers to Giant Questions, which you can get on Amazon if you want to find out more. Here's the quote. As we saw earlier, the chains are not literal chains. Rather, the angels are described as being unable to exercise their full capabilities. The reference to chains is an obvious metaphor by which we're meant to understand that the angels are being restrained. Jude also uses this idea but modifies the metaphor to speak of everlasting or eternal chains. And now we'll just read verse 6 from the letter of Jude. And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. 
What's interesting here is that the chains are not connected with the idea of darkness in any place in First Enoch that actually talks about the fallen angels, but you do find chains and darkness talked about together with regard to the fate of sinners, in particular, the unjust wealthy. Just thought I'd put that out there for people to think about. That was particularly relevant in the context for Jude. Anyway, when we look at those references in First Enoch, it would appear that we're talking about the cosmology of the unseen world in terms of the location where these evildoers are being restrained. So this isn't a place that you could go to. As I said before, it's not like you could just pick the right spot, dig a deep hole and find them down there. So yeah, I do believe that those fallen angels have been restrained for a future purpose. And I think the Revelation chapter 9 describes that purpose. Have a read of that later on, see what you think. Anyway, I hope that answers your question, Tom. Thanks for reaching out. And don't forget, listeners, you too can be just like Tom and send in your own giant questions to be featured on the show. Just use the contact form on the website, giantanswers.com. That's all for now. We'll see you next week. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless nervous when they said that there was a chance of snow i was like well snow doesn't happen here no um so this is end of the world kind of stuff (laughs) and besides um it might be looked bad in front of a lot of my american friends who i've told repeatedly because they do not believe me that you don't get snow here (laughs) yes so i mean that would just completely trash my credibility okay that sounds like it's gonna be no that's way off <clears throat> you can't say there are no oranges people are still making noise in the background <sighs> i really should do this in the middle of the night um right let's try again that's interesting so oh, that didn't sound okay oh. you're gonna watch the new uh spider-man um, I don't know. I might wait until people more knowledgeable yeah. about things watch it and tell me if it's worth it. That's kind of the way I'm watching all the Marvel stuff lately. I'm, yeah. I haven't seen anything advertised that's made me going, oh, well, I'm definitely going to go and watch that. I'm well. Indiana Jones? Uh, also. It's had mixed reviews, which is very disappointing. The Flash, Michael Keaton uh, back as Batman. You know what, that, that is probably the thing I'm most interested in watching. Mm, that's a great review, surprisingly. I wouldn't mind going to see that. And, yes, I will admit that it's mainly because you get so many cool superheroes in the same movie. Yeah. 
Um, and Michael Keaton, you know, you know, I'm showing my age, but we, we grew up with that, didn't we? Yeah, we and we're both much more handsome. That's right. I think you know, like a fine wine, we've just become a lot harder to appreciate. I'll tell you why I went up north of the river to the other side mm-hmm. where the people dwell. Mm. Because I wanted a pair of shoes match yep. my seat on my bike. I because <laughs> when I was doing up the bike, I saw this this really cool looking bike seat that not only looked really comfy, which I need because I'm heavy, but also I thought, well, that's just going to really set off the the colour scheme and everything on the bike. So it'd be really great. I really need to get it. So I got it. And then I was like, hmm, problem is that the seat and other parts of the bike that were made by the same manufacturer, all this gear was made as a tribute to the shoes made by the, the company that's that's done this sort of crossover with the with the BMX company. Right. And so I thought, I haven't got the right shoes. Now I need to get shoes to match the bike. So that's the reason. Yeah, tick that one off my list now. Well, I've made uh, wilder purchases for less uh, sense, so uh, you have my full understanding and support. There you go. I feel a lot better now. <laughs> Sleep well. May you remain dry. I certainly hope I'll remain dry uh, in my own bed. Uh, <laughs> We're not that old yet, or that young. Incidentally, this is all stuff that I cover in my book, and I have mentioned some of these things on the podcast already, and then I kicked the chair while I was talking, so... <laughs> Incidentally, this is all stuff that I cover in my book, and I'm <laughs> now laughing. Right. <laughs> Don't stir me. I'm very volatile.